So we're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. We're going to go through chapter 1. And yes, I'm going to do the whole chapter. Um, that'll be unusual. We'll get through it all. So let's pray again. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Lord, more so than usual, even uh, grateful to be able to stand here. And, and Lord, on your behalf, share your word. And Lord, we just pray that this morning as we dig into your word, Lord, that you would reveal your truths to us. Lord, show us, maybe Lord, the things we haven't seen before. Or help us to apply them to our own lives right where we sit today. In the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. Lord, we, we come to this place to learn more about you. Lord, to encourage and be encouraged by other believers. Lord, to just seek your will in our lives. And Lord, this morning as we, we look at that very thing in Scripture, Lord, we just pray that you'll meet us right where we are. Lord, as the loving Father that desires to instruct us. And we just lift this time up to you, Lord. May our hearts and minds be open to your word, your truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Colossians... Uh, Colossae was about 100 miles inland from Ephesus on a major trade route. We don't see a lot about them in the Bible. In fact, this was probably one of the, you could say, most insignificant in the in realm of political influence, one of the most insignificant cities that Paul wrote to. They're only really mentioned in one other book in the Bible, and I think one verse. We don't know a lot about them outside of this book, short of what we have outside the Bible. Laodicea and Heropolis were also uh, along this little trade route that Colossae was on. Now, there was a lot of false teaching, like in most areas, here in Colossae also. The Gnostics were trying to get all the Christians off track on a quest for a deeper knowledge, really some weird philosophies that just had no founding. The Judaizers, of course, uh, with their standard beliefs that the, the Christians needed to be brought more into the legalism and the rituals, uh, brought back to the law, brought into that bondage. The mystics were here, and they wanted to, to get the Christians involved into a mystical worship, which included worshiping the angels themselves, and that still exists to this day. The Essenes told them that spirituality came through self-denial, a hyper-self-discipline, and, and really, you had to have Jesus plus something else. You had to, to do some great works on yourself, some extreme stuff along with Jesus in order to have salvation. But the, the message of the gospel is none of those things. The, gospel is the, mess, the message of the gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. As we go into the first verse, there's a quote by D.L. Moody that, that really is, seems fitting here. D.L. Moody said, What I intend to do is preach Christ in such a way that he is so irresistible that none of the other religions will even be an option. That if we share the truths of Christ, if we simply share what we have, what Christ gave us, then the other religions, once we begin to look at them, begin to fall apart quickly for what they are. So in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, a reminder that this is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this letter from prison. And Paul had never been to Colossae. It's not a place that he ever visited. We have, we have nothing to indicate that he was ever there. So he's not met the people he was addressing in this letter. However, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, an apostle, the original word in Greek here was apollos, which means a delegate or a messenger or one sent, typically with orders. So Paul was a delegate. And, and with a message, the message was Jesus Christ's message, the message of his gospel. He spread the, the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ as that delicate. And by the will of God, that's an important factor, and that's really the theme for our message today. By the will of God, as a delegate, who did Paul represent? 
You know, our nation sends delegates out to around the world. Are they there just on vacation to have a good time to see what they can build up for themselves? That's really, if they're doing that, they're not accomplishing what they were sent for. The reason our president sends delegates out is to represent our nation, our national interest in these foreign lands. And that's what God has done. He's called Paul as an, as an apostle or a delegate and a messenger to spread the message of Jesus Christ to the world. He's representing God, just like Jesus did, to the world. So Paul is carrying out the will of God by delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Now, there's a, there's a lot to look at here in this first verse. First of all, we can often find ourselves using our current situation or current circumstances as an excuse as to why we don't do more to serve God. So we, we mentioned Paul's in prison here. Paul could have said, well, I'm, I guess this is a time out. I can sit back and not do anything for a while. God's not going to allow me to, to do any more work. But that's not what he did. Paul continued writing letters, which I'm grateful for because we have the Bible. Many of the letters in the Bible were written by Paul. But often we can sit back and we can say, because of my current circumstances or because of my current situation, I've been put on hold. I can't do a lot for the Lord right now. And we don't want to do that. We can often spend our time focusing on what we can't do instead of what we can do in our present situation. But Paul recognized God's calling for him to share the gospel. And he didn't let anything stop him. He was going to share the gospel despite shipwreck, beaten, snake bitten, or put in jail. Nothing could stop Paul. Paul acknowledged God's calling on his life and he set out with a focus to live in that calling. He was living in the will of God. Now Paul also indicates in this letter that it is from Timothy, our brother. In the introduction he says, and Timothy, our brother. Paul was always in the company of other Christians. Paul was not a loner, even though he was in prison. And it's hard to imagine, but even being in prison, there were other Christians around him. In his letters to the churches, typically at the beginning or the end, he recognizes the other, the other Christians that were there with him or had been with him, sometimes were no longer present with him. He recognized the work or what they were doing either in his life or on his behalf and going to other churches. And it's important that we recognize that we spend time with other believers. It's part of a, a healthy Christian life for a couple of reasons. One, God did not create us to be loners. We don't see that picture anywhere in the Bible. In the very beginning, after creating Adam, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And in the very beginning, God gave man a woman as a helper because he shouldn't be alone. God created us as social beings. He gave us festivals and feasts. Those are all group events. How much fun is a festival or a feast if you're the only one there? I mean, you've got to do the cooking, the eating, and the cleaning the dishes then. Even at the men's breakfast yesterday, we had multiple guys helping out. But God created the family. He gave it a structure with a man, a woman, and a child, all with their own roles within the structure. Then, if all things go well, and you let your children live long enough, you have grandchildren. Then the fun really begins. Again, it's a social environment that we were created to be in. God organized the tribes of Israel, each with their own priorities or uh, responsibilities in many ways. Again, groups of people. Then we have the largest group of all, the church. As the church, we are a large group that God is calling together, all of those that belong to Him, and organizing us to become His bride. God is organizing us to become the bride of Christ. You think about it, the Bible is all about relationships. It's about our relationship with God, with our spouse, with other believers, even with unbelievers, with our employers, employees, and co-workers, and even our relationship with our enemy. Yeah, I'm speaking about Satan. Even the Bible shows us how to or not to interact with Satan. 
When asked, which is the great commandment in the law, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So his response again speaks to what? Our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. The second reason we need to be in, that we need to uh, be in fellowship with other believers is spending time with other believers will strengthen us and build us up. Separating ourselves from believers and immersing ourselves in a world will pull us down. Think about the prodigal son here. Having separated from the father and going out on his own into the world. And that's really what that story is a picture of, is submersing himself in the world. He found himself going down, 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 until he finally turned and looked up and began to make his way back to the father. After Peter delivered that sermon on the day of Pentecost, Luke recorded, Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This was the beginning of the church age under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And what we see there is a picture who are coming out of the world and coming into the church, the family. It's a new group that they belong to. And that's the model that we want to see. As individuals, are, the truth is revealed to them and they come to accept Christ as their Savior. We, we want to see them disciple. The cycle that we typically see in ministry is a person hears the gospel. They respond to the gospel. They're baptized. They're discipled, they share the gospel, and the cycle repeats. We begin again. We hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, be baptized, be discipled, share the gospel, and repeat. And that's the, the model for ministry that we want to use here at Calvary Chapel. Paul was always in the company of other Christians. If Paul felt that it was important to be surrounded by believers, I know that I need that in my life also. Now that we've looked at who the letter is from, Paul, an, an apostle, carrying the message of Christ on behalf of God himself and, and his brother. Now let's take a look at who the letter is to. Verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's some words there in that, that verse I really like. I really want to hold, lay hold to those. Saint, faithful, brethren. Those are words that if we're referred to in that way, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're in a good place. So the word saint, the definition for saint contains words like sacred, pure, morally blameless, consecrated, and holy. Those are some big words from our Bible. Another word is faithful. One who trusts in God's promises. And I'm going to point out here and we'll talk more about it, but it doesn't say just believes, but trusts in God's promises. And the word brethren, meaning belonging to the same people, countrymen. Those who are exalted to the same heavenly place. Notice the image of fellowship here once again. So here's a question that I pondered while studying this that I couldn't avoid. I sat and thought for quite a while about this. Could Paul address a letter to the, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem? You always have to stop and, and take these scriptures and say, can we make them personal? Can we, can we apply this to us? If Paul were writing a letter to this fellowship as he was doing to the people of Colossae, could he, could he open it to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Calvary Chapel Fellowship of Winston-Salem? Will we be viewed as saints, faithful, and the brethren, part of the brethren? And really, as I thought about that question, we really have to give it each individual consideration. Because in reality, Calvary Chapel Fellowship is simply a collection of us as individuals. The church is nothing without the individuals, and, and we as individuals make up the church. 
So when I start looking at that personally, I know that God has declared me sacred, pure, morally blameless, consecrated, and holy. But I also know I have room to improve in all these areas of my life. I know there's more work that I can do. You know, I believe in all of God's promises, but do I really trust Him in His promises? I know that God is in control and He's looking out for me in all things. But sometimes I catch myself trying to work things out on my own, just in case God needs a little help. Because we know that's often the case, right? God always needs our help to mess things up. You know, I'm making every effort to live as one of the brethren according to God's will. I strive to be a godly brother, husband, and father. I want to represent Christ in my job. I want to serve in the church in the role that I've been called to here. You know, I want to fill all these roles according to God's will. However, at times I find myself more concerned about the circumstances than His will. And that's where we keep going back in the, the same circle. We get focused on our circumstances again and not the will that God has for our lives. But even more important than Paul's view of Calvary Chapel Fellowship and of us individually, what would God's assessment be? How would God view our individual relationships, us individually? You know, and we can go to God with these questions, and we should. The three questions we can go to God with are, God, in what areas of my life would you like to make improvements? If this is His life, if we've turned it over to Him, it's a question we need to ask. And then we need to stop and listen for an answer. Second question would be, God, please show me the places where I'm trusting in myself when I should be trusting in you. Give me the courage to turn it over to you. The third question, God, please show me your will for my life in the body of believers. How do you desire to use me to strengthen the church? How do you desire to use me to represent your son to the world? And with those three questions, if we go to God with a sincere heart and asking him, he'll be faithful to answer. Sometimes we don't always get the answer we want to see. Sometimes it leads to an adventure that we weren't ready for, didn't expect. But God's always faithful. He will be faithful to answer our prayers with exactly what Paul requested for the Colossians. Look at Paul's prayer. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God answers our questions. Because where we have those shortcomings, if we go to him and ask him to help us, he's not going to sit and beat us for those shortcomings. He's going to help us work through them. He's going to help to circumcise our hearts. He's going to help to grow us in the way that he would have us go. Now, the opening of this letter is a typical salutation that Paul uses in his letters. Salutation is my biggest word for the day. I looked it up and made sure I used it right. But this is, this is a typical salutation for Paul. He's requesting that perfect grace and peace that is only available from a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. So we go on to verse 3. Paul says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now, Paul is thanking God, the Father, for salvation in the Colossians. Paul recognizes that their salvation is a work of God. It's not an individual work on their part. Again, he says, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes that their faith in Christ Jesus is a work of God, and he extends his praise to God for this work. Now, this is an important precept to understand, the fact that salvation is a work of God through Christ. It's important for a couple of reasons. The first one is in reference to ourselves. We need to remember it's a work of God, that God is the author of our salvation so that we don't become prideful. For by the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. From Ephesians 2, 9. 
So, of course, we don't want to take control from him and mess things up. We want to leave him in complete control at all times. Number two, in reference to unbelievers, and this really is what I saw here in this scripture, an understanding that salvation is a work of God gives us the tools that we need to minister to unbelievers. If we have unbelieving family and friends, we should be appealing to God for their salvation. It can be tempting, unfortunately, to focus our efforts on them. We feel like we need to go to them and beg them to turn their life over, to make changes in their life. And in reality, they don't have the power to do that if they don't know Christ. In Romans 10.1, we're told, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Here we see a prayer to God for Israel's salvation. Because even in that time, Israel was not really following God. They were too hung up in the law. God, speaking of Israel in Ezekiel 11, says, Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So we see here, even God says, before they can follow his statutes, he has to give them a heart of flesh. He has to do a work in their heart before they can follow him. Again, referring to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So God may need to circumcise the hearts of the unbelievers to take away those things that are of themselves to allow them to focus on God. In Acts chapter 16, it's recorded. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So even Paul here recognized that he, the message he was sharing was of no benefit until the Lord had opened up Lydia's heart to hear the message of the gospel. So we can see that God performs the work of salvation. God circumcises the heart in, allow, in order to allow the believer to be dedicated to serving and worshiping him. So if that's the case, when we see an unbeliever, we really need to begin by appealing to God, asking him to soften their heart, asking him to do a work in their life knowing that he's the one that will perform the work of salvation. That doesn't leave us totally out of the equation. God likes to use us. He wants to speak through us. He'll use us as examples. He will use us to speak truth to their life. He may use us to answer their questions. So we're certainly there, but we have to recognize that we can't do the true work of salvation in their lives. Here Paul says that they prayed always for the Colossians after hearing of their faith in Christ Jesus and of their love for all the saints. The prayer should not stop once a person accepts Christ as their Savior. We all know that as Christians, we need prayers also. In many ways, this is just a new work beginning once a person turns to the Lord. As a person turns from their their old life to their new life, they have much to learn about living a a life dedicated to God. I'm still learning daily how to walk in the Spirit, live life of the Lord. An unbeliever's life is guided and directed by the world. And really the desire of their own flesh. It rules over their world. But once they've given that life up and they've turned to the Lord, they're now allowing the Spirit to guide and direct them. This is is truly a new world. A new focus in their life. A new master of their life. Discipleship is required for a believer to become truly strong in this new relationship. Paul records in Ephesians, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. A new believer is really in a vulnerable spot. 
they've turned away from that life that they've been in their entire life, the way they know is a life, and they now find themselves as a foreigner, foreigner in a strange land. Prayer and discipleship is important. You know, if we think here, the disciples spent how long at the feet of Jesus being taught? Three years. The disciples spent three years at the feet of Jesus being taught. And even they had to have stuff repeated over and over and over. I don't know anything about that. I get it all the first time. Well, maybe that was the third. Maybe I just can't count. As we move on to verse 6, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So the Christians in Colossae, Paul identifies as being faithful. They have a faith in Jesus Christ. They have love for Jesus and each other. Talks about the hope they have in the soon coming of Jesus in heaven. And fruitful, they're fruitful in sharing the gospel. God does not want them to stay where they are. We've already talked about the the need for discipleship. And that comes out of a, a need of growth in a Christian life. On a memorial stone for a young climber that died while attempting to uh, climb one of the one of the peaks in the Swiss Alps, there's a, a cemetery there near the base of those mountains. It's a memorial to many that have died there. For one of the young climbers, and it doesn't give a name, but there's an inscription on the memorial stone that simply says, I chose to climb. I chose to climb. And I've read there's also another one that says he died climbing. In other words, he continued till the end. And as we, if we apply that to our Christian lives and recognize the fact that God never desires for us to stay right where we are, but just to continue in our discipleship, to continue growing, to continue learning, to continue developing ourselves, to share Him and become more like Him, that's a place we, we want to continue and we never want to give up. We want to die climbing. We want to die learning. We want to die ministering God's gospel. The Colossians were obviously being discipled and learning. They were growing in their faith and in their love for one another. We should never rest in our pursuit of God's knowledge and God's wisdom in our lives. There is no knowledge or wisdom greater than that of God, which is manifested to us through Jesus. And in verse 9, Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So Paul's praying that they would be filled with wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's a prayer that we want to pray for one another on a regular basis. Because Paul wants to continue to see them grow as we want to see one another grow. The more wisdom and understanding that we have, the better perspective we have. And a proper perspective is always helpful in life. A highway patrolman pulled over a car on Interstate 40 one time. The car was driving about 40 miles in a 60 mile per hour zone, had a line of traffic backed up behind it, as you can imagine. So the car pulled over to the shoulder, he walked up behind the car, and he noticed the car was full of nuns. And he asked the driver, said, ma'am, is everything okay? You're, you're driving awful slow. And she said, well, officer, I'm driving the posted speed limit, 40 mile per hour. 
said, no, ma'am. And he explained to her that Interstate 40 sign was not 40 mile per hour, but was simply the name of that highway. The speed limit was 65. She said, oh, now I understand. He said, I, I won't let it happen again. And as he's about to let her go, he notices the nuns in the back have this look of just sheer fright on their faces. So, so he looked at me and said, are you, you all right? You okay? And one of the nuns replied, well, we, we just turned off a of Highway 110. <laughs> so having the correct knowledge and understanding of what we see is important in our lives. It's a vital element to the Christian life. Just reading the scriptures is great. It's a good beginning, but we really need to take the time to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us, to, to disciple us in the use of them, to make us experts of these scriptures, to truly know them and understand them. Learning how to apply the knowledge and understanding and how we live our life requires discipleship and encouragement. More wisdom and spiritual understanding help us to see with Christ's perspective. The more we read the Bible, the more we understand the scriptures. This knowledge of Jesus' will helps us to see our wife as Jesus sees her, as a daughter, as his bride. To see see the brother that gets on your nerves as one of his sons. To see your heathen co-worker as someone that Christ shed his blood for. To see the homeless person as Christ sees them. To see who we are. To see who God's will for our life is. The proper wisdom and understanding allow us to walk worthy of the Lord, as it says in verse 10. Fruitful in every good work. Able to respond in the spirit instead of reacting in the flesh. Strengthened according to his power. Leaning on his strength instead of our own. Think of David and Goliath there. Think of Paul being beaten in the stone. And yet he was always able to lean on God to continue forward. Nothing could stop him. David, what better example of faith in God than a young boy picking up a sling and going after a giant that the entire Israel army was scared of. And he declared, you spoke against my God. This can't be allowed. And it took a young teenage boy to to show the the Israel army how they should proceed forward. We should be giving thanks we should be thankful to the Father. Our lives should be filled with thankfulness for what we have, not complainers. We should be the most thankful people on the planet. Verse 12 says, we are qualified, He has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. We are no longer going to hell. Or how quickly have we forgotten that we were once on the road to hell? Verse 13, we should be thankful because He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's, again, the work of God doing this. Brought us out of darkness into the light. We should be thankful because in verse 13, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's first description of Jesus in Colossians is in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn here indicates the priority in time or a supremacy in rank. can be both. Jesus was before all things. Jesus was not created. He was in existence before all things. And Jesus was supreme. He was supremely different of a different order than all things that were created. He was not created. He was in rank above all things created because all things were created through him. In verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. 
So there's three things here in this scripture that we need to recognize about Jesus. First of all, we need to look at his relationship to God. Jesus is the the image of the invisible God. He is the image, the earthly flesh manifestation of the invisible God. The word image that's translated here is where we get our English word for icon. It means an impression made by a die or a stamp in wax. This is the way they sealed the old scrolls so you know they hadn't been tampered with. Much like our tape or glue on letters today, you can tell if one's been opened. Jesus was the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space. Think about that. God being indefinite in time, uh, spanning across all time and space. Jesus was, was that brought down to one simple time in space, conveyed to us in, in flesh. Jesus revealed the personal character of God, the perfect manifestation of God to man. In verse 19, we'll read that it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. Jesus represented to us divine wisdom in a human brain. Think about that. There's no way we can have all the understanding of God. The closest we ever see is Jesus and His his wisdom. Jesus represented divine love in a human heart. If only we could love the way Jesus loved others. Divine compassion in a human eye. Always think back to Jesus talking about the people when he looked at them were like like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. And it moved him with compassion. He had that compassion for all humans. Divine compassion in a human eye. And divine grace through human lips. So many of the examples he gave us in our New Testament of loving other people. Where he could have judged. He had all the authority and all the right to have judged people. He didn't. He chose not to. Instead, he extended grace time and time again. John 1.16 says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. This is a Jesus who is in you and wants to live his life through you. Jesus' relationship to God allows God to work through us. Second is the relationship to creation. We looked at Jesus' relationship to God, but what is Jesus' relation to creation? As we study the galaxies, the planets, and human anatomy, we see this. The light from the sun takes about eight minutes to reach us. That's 93 million miles away. One planet closer to the sun than Earth, Venus, is 875 degrees average temperature. One planet further away, we have Mars, minus, <coughs> minus 200 degrees. But then in the middle, we have Earth, just right for human existence. Everything works just great as he created it. It was perfect as he created it in the original record in Genesis. All things were created by him and for him. We find our sense of being by realizing that we were made for him. When we recognize that Christ made us for him, that God desired for us to be a part of that family, a part of the church for his glory, then we can find joy in doing the things that we were made for. It helps give a purpose to our life that we don't have when we're serving ourselves. The third is the relation to the church. Jesus is the head of the church, and we need to recognize that the church is a living organism. Again, as I've mentioned before, it's made up of us. We are the church. We need to stay focused on the head of our church, on Christ. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to be focused on Jesus. We need to stay connected. 
Colossians 2, 8 through 10 says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So we are dead if we are without our head. As a church, we can't function without the leadership of Christ. We don't exist had it not been for Christ. So we need to remain connected to the one who is our head. That's where we gain our guidance and our direction. We need to, three, grow into our head. Ephesians four fourteen through 16 says that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from the, whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body by the edifying of itself in love. And there's more scripture that, again, points back to that fellowship, the fact that we're not meant to be alone, that we're part of a, a living organism called the church that's dependent on one another, each of its members. We look to Jesus in all things because Jesus has been, has been placed over all things. When we begin to put our own desires and needs above those of Jesus, we begin to get in trouble. This is where we mess things up. Jesus' preeminence is visible in creation in in that all things were created by him and for him and that when we keep him as the focus, as the head of the church, all things function correctly. Verse 19. We've already looked forward to this, but it says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The word fullness here translates from the ancient Greek word pleroma, and was really just another way to say that Jesus is truly God. The word fullness was a recognized technical term in theology. It's denoting the totality of the divine powers and attributes. So when he says fullness, it's, it's really a way of, of summing up the, the phrase that God, that Jesus is God, incomplete. One commentator writes, the Gnostics distributed the divine powers among various eons. Paul gathers them all up in Christ, a full and flat statement of the deity of Christ. And you can see why this was so difficult for so many of them to understand Christ and why Paul spends so much time on this. When you have teachers that worship multiple gods... They, they taught that you had to go to a different God for all the different things. The sun, the moon, water, fire, all these different things. And here's Paul saying, no, I've got it all wrong. There is only one God. And Christ is the manifestation of him in the flesh. All the power is, belongs to one being, not multiple beings. Jesus' atoning work is full and broad. Think about that. Jesus' atoning work is full and it's broad. It's sufficient for anyone that is willing to accept it. And again, we notice where peace was made. We don't make our own peace with God. Salvation is not a work of our own. Jesus made peace for us through his work on the cross. He bridged that gap between us and God. Salvation is a work of God. Paul, speaking to the people of Colossae, again, keep in mind these are Gentile Christians. They were not Jewish. In verse 21 says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death 
to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And I skip over the word your there when I read that because really the translation, um, it reads better, it reads more accurate for the idea if you leave that word out. We were enemies in mind by wicked works. Our minds were not of the Lord. The ancient Greek word translated from alienated, I'm not going to say it because I can't, it's about that long, is literally transferred to another owner. So when it says alienated, we were transferred to another owner. This transfer of ownership happened back in the time of Adam and Eve. Really everything, as I mentioned before, was perfect. The world was created perfect in Genesis. But Adam and Eve fell to sin, and there was this this alienation from God at that point in time that has affected both mind and behavior ever since. And that's why there's the need for that salvation, that atonement, that reconciling of the, the sin that stands between us and God that Christ fulfilled. Adam and Eve were living in the will of God until Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also under her husband with her and he did eat. Having done this, Adam and Eve are now living outside of the will of God. And this is where we say they were enemies in mind by their wicked works. They had far more knowledge than God had ever intended them to possess. They had enough knowledge that they were literally dangerous. We hear that phrase and we often use it in the joking terms. We know just enough to be dangerous. And that's kind of the situation they were in. They knew just enough to be dangerous, literally to the point of their own death. Ephesians chapter 2, reading from the NLT, says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our own sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's important to remember that We were once all on that path to hell, every one of us. We did not know God. We could not serve God because we didn't know God. We could not not know God's will for our lives because we didn't know God. Yet now he was reconciled, Paul tells us in the scriptures. Yet now he was reconciled. God's answer to the problem of that alienation is reconciliation. Initiated by his work on the cross, we're reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. In the work of reconciliation, God didn't meet us halfway. God made us all the way. He did the complete work and invites us to accept the work that he has done. We all needed a way to know God, a way to know God's will for our lives. Now Jesus comes into the picture. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And that scripture out of Hebrews comes right at the end of the talk about how Jesus' sacrifice was the final one. That the priest had to go into the temple over and over offering the sacrifice of animals. The shedding of blood had to occur year in, year out, on a regular basis to atone for the sins of men. But Christ, when he came onto the scene, he was the final sacrifice. Now he sits at the throne next to the Father. He doesn't have to repeat that sacrifice over and over. 
with that sacrifice, we can all now have the opportunity to know God <clears throat> through a personal relationship with Jesus, the perfect image of God. We accept Christ into our lives. We begin to read our Bibles and pray. We begin to understand how God desires to work in our lives. Then, as Paul writes in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here we focus. We focus on our faith. We focus on Jesus. We focus on imitating Christ. We focus on representing Christ to others. We remain grounded. We keep the foundational principles in mind in all things. Keep them as the center of all that we do. Those principles include others first. This is one of the most outstanding traits of Jesus Christ. He truly represented a life of putting others first, which is what God calls us to do. He represents a dedication to God, not an on-again, off-again Christian life. You know, we should ask ourselves, do we look like Christians in church and outside of church? Do we act differently when we're around other believers? He also represents a solid relationship. This means talking daily with God, praying daily. And talking with God includes listening, which we often can easily forget. Nehemiah 9.17 says, They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. As we find ourselves stumbling in those areas that I just mentioned and putting others first and our dedication to God and, and in the uh, depth of our relationship, God is merciful to us. As we stumble in those things, carrying those out, He calls us back. He doesn't put up a wall and say, you messed up. Sorry, that was your one opportunity door closed. He continues to call us back. That verse that I just read, does it describe your relationship with others? Are we ready to, to call them back? Are we gracious and merciful to them, both believers and unbelievers? Do we recognize even the unbelievers, the, the way they act, the way their lives are lived is based on all they know. They don't know any different. And that's why we need to pray. We need to ask God to intercede in their life to provide for that salvation. We need to remain steadfast. We don't want to entertain suggestions from the enemy. We don't want to flirt with boundaries or borders like Adam and Eve did. They were hanging out at the forbidden fruit tree. We need to stay away from the things that are forbidden, not to even flirt with danger. Cling to what you know. Cling to the promises of God. We want to hold on to His promises. We truly want to trust in them, not believe them, but actually walk and trust in those promises. Do not be swayed. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is head, Christ. Paul's life was characterized by sacrificial service to Christ. And where did he learn that from? From Christ himself. Christ lived a sacrificial life in every sense of the word. Paul's life was characterized by this same sacrificial service to Christ. In verse 24, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God 
which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As I said, Paul wrote this letter from a Roman jail. He was able to see that his sufferings somehow worked good for others. He was getting letters from the other churches. People were still coming to see him and sharing news with him. So he knew that that despite all of his sufferings, things were still working out for others. It was a benefit to others. So he could say that his sufferings were for the Colossians and other Christians. Remember when Pastor Jeff Rudd uh, was sick in his last days, I talked with him and he he was dying of cancer. Um, Never missed a day of teaching. And that's one of the things he shared with me in the years of fighting cancer. He never missed a day at the the two prisons where he was ministering. Every Bible study was carried out in one way or another. And he said, I don't, people keep writing me letters and calling me and telling me how me going through this is encouraging them and they're becoming stronger. And, and he says, Scott, I don't understand. I just don't. As hard as, as hard as this is for me, I don't know how it's helping anybody, but they keep telling me it is. And I keep getting call after call, letter after letter. That just knowing what I'm going through is strengthening them. And I don't think Jeff ever did truly understand it. And I don't know if he could. But I know he made a difference. Talking to the men in the prison that I've met, the, the men within the church, outside of the prison, all have such a wonderful testimony of Jeff's life that he was making a difference. And that's, that's what Paul is trying to convey here. He I don't understand this, but my suffering is leading to the furtherance of the gospel somehow. It's strengthening other people. One commentator points out that the term afflictions of Christ is never associated with the redemptive suffering of Jesus upon the cross. It speaks rather of those ministerial sufferings which Paul bears because he represents Jesus Christ. So Paul's in no way trying to say, my work is providing for your salvation. He doesn't imply that. He's simply saying that because I represent Christ, I will be made to suffer. Through Paul's sufferings, Jesus is able to continue his work in the individuals that Paul encounters. For the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you all to fulfill the word of God. So it's not that Paul's sufferings are replacing or in any way enhancing the work that Christ did. It's simply that because Paul is willing to put himself last and the needs of others first in that suffering, Christ is able to work. Paul will not step aside and and stop the ministry or allow the ministry to stop. As a minister, according to the stewardship from which God has, was given to me for you, Paul was a servant to the body of Christ. He recognized and fulfilled the requirement to put the needs of the church above his own personal desires. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul explains this in more detail. Paul explains, beginning in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, 
I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And what Paul's sharing is that while for him personally, he would love to be at the presence of Jesus, the benefit of the, the people is more so for him to be there with them. That his work he's doing in the flesh has a value to it, a benefit to it that's not accomplished if he's not there. This is the example of the other sinner's life that Christ demonstrated. In verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. This reminds us that there are aspects to God's plan that were not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the New Testament, but not everything was completely revealed to us. Part of the specific mystery that Paul refers to here deals with many aspects of the work of Jesus in his people, but especially the plan of the church to make one body out of Jew and Gentile. Old Testament, there's nothing there that really points that the Gentiles would ever be included in God's family. They were a separate people to be avoided. Another portion of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, Paul writes, is the wonder and the glory of the abiding, indwelling Jesus was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament especially that he would abide in the Gentiles. Therefore, this aspect of the work of Jesus in his people was a mystery that wasn't revealed until the time of Jesus and the apostles. Now, both of these would have been strange if you tried to explain them in the Old Testament. The fact that Jesus was going to bring or allow for the Gentiles to be brought into the church or the family of God would have been unheard of in Old Testament thinking. And the, the indwelling of Christ inside of us to come into us through His Holy Spirit was not a concept they understood. This was only a possibility after Christ's death when the veil was torn. The veil being torn top to bottom recorded in Matthew 27, verses 50 through 53. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So once the veil was torn, that was the veil that separated the the rest of the sanctuary from the holy of holies. This was the barrier that stood between man and God. Christ's salvation work on the cross, his payment for our sins, tore that barrier, destroyed that barrier. That veil no longer exists. Christ now lives in each one of us. Paul had to explain this to the Corinthians as well. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The temple of God that is referred to here in the original language refers to the holies of holies portion of the temple. That's the terminology used. That's the same place that the high priest could only go once a year. And even then, he wasn't sure it was going to work out good. Even after going through the entire ceremonial cleansing, he tied a rope around his ankle. In case things didn't turn out so well, they could pull him back out. But the temple and the Holy of Holies no longer exists. Or does it? Where does it exist now? It's each one of us. Each member of the church is that Holy of Holies. There's no longer a need for that temple with the Holy of Holies in it. I think that we all need to be reminded on a regular basis that Christ lives in and through each one of us. Much of the work that Christ is doing is dependent upon us and our willingness to participate, to be willing participants of his work. You know, are you allowing him to be seen? Or are you taking up the spotlight in the work that he's trying to do? Do you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
our two last verses here in chapter 1. And you could call this really Paul's motto for apostolic ministry. In verse 28, Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working with works in me mightily. Paul knew that Paul knew what God's will in his life was. He recognized it as an ambassador of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And as a result of knowing God's will in his life, he remained focused on it. He remained focused on sharing the gospel wherever he went and discipling other believers. The goal of Paul's ministry was to bring people to a maturity in Christ and not a dependence on himself. One commentator writes, Therefore, the aim of this epistle, and indeed of all apostolic work, is admonishing and teaching every man toward the realization of perfection in Christ, because that issues in the, per, in, that issues in the perfecting of the whole church. And another commentator wrote, This work was for every man. In contrast, the false teachers at Colossae believed the way of salvation to be so involved that it could be understood only by a select few who made up a sort of spiritual aristocracy. Now, the gospel is not beyond anybody, as some teach. The gospel is not only for a few to understand and everybody else just to, to wish they had or aspire to, but never be able to accomplish. The gospel message is for every man. So what if this letter from Paul had been started this way? Instead of the way he wrote it, what if Paul had said, Paul, a would-be apostle, if only God would get me out of jail. Written to the lucky individuals in Colossae who aren't having to endure this terrible hardship that I'm having to endure. The letter would have turned out much differently, I think, had Paul not recognized God's will in his life. Paul wasn't going to allow the fact that he was in jail affect the gospel. It had no direct bearance on it. Take a moment to think about that. Do you know God's will in your life? Have you taken the time to allow Him to speak into your life, to ask the questions that we looked at? How does He want to use you in the church? How does He want to use you within your family? All those uh, groups that we looked at, all those different family structures, work structures, church structures, how is He desiring to use you in those? What gifts has He given you that He desires to use to build up this body? to reach to unbelievers, to bring them to a faith in Christ, to share the gospel with them, to encourage other believers that may be struggling or just having a bad day. Something we can take the time and and share. And and again, we wonder, could Paul address this letter to us individually, if not Calvary Chapel Fellowship, in the way he did to the faithful brethren? Lord, we thank you for loving us so much that, Lord, you give us teachers like Paul. You give those that... Lord, would not turn away from the ministry regardless of their circumstances and their situations. Lord, we thank you for the desire that they demonstrate. The desire to to maintain a focus on you, to carry your gospel into the whole world. And Lord, we pray that you would just show us your will for our lives. Lord, show us precisely what you want to do with us. Lord, help us to not only believe but to trust in your promises. Lord, not only to know that you can, but Lord, to know that you will be faithful in your promises. That there is no circumstance or situation that you're not aware of. There's no circumstance or situation in our lives that's beyond your control. But Lord, they're there to grow us. They're there to teach us, to make us stronger. The world would use them as distractions, but Lord, you use them as a tool. Lord, help us to focus on you. Help us to 
demonstrate the love that you have to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.